You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Ryan Cooper. Ryan, could you please introduce yourself? Hi. Uh, yeah, my name's Ryan Cooper. I'm a national correspondent at The Week, and i um, Done a few book reviews for The Nation and uh, Current Affairs and various other places. And, yeah, that's pretty much my story. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time to come on. And so we're mainly going to be talking yeah. about um, recent pieces you've written in the week, and we'll link to them below this on the blog site. And, uh, but the, the one that, made, that I read uh, that made me want to ask you to come on is – uh, uh, ran a week ago, and the headline is Obama the Pretender, and it is a um, sort of somewhat of a book review, but also, I guess, sort of a <laughs> historical review, or uh, judging, uh, you know, you are looking at uh, the story Obama tells about his early presidency, I guess the time somewhat before, and um, and I'll just, I'll just read the first line, and then we can get into it. So you, you say, uh, quote, as socialist, I have a confession to make. Back in 2008, I was a campaign volunteer for Barack Obama. So you, um, at least, were feeling the hope and change at least a little bit uh, back back then, as as I was as well. Although I'm not a socialist, um, but I guess you you became disillusioned, and you have a, a pretty strong critique of Obama's uh, uh, economic record. But why, what, let's just first start with the the memoir itself. It's called A Promised Land. Is that, is that the title? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Would you? So I. I, I read um, Dreams from My Father, you know, when that when after Obama made a big splash in 2005 or whatever, when they reissued that. And I think I maybe even read Audacity of Hope. Um, and but then I saw that this one was coming out and that it's like 750 pages and it's only the first of two. And it's also forty five dollars. So Obama is so that's pretty expensive for a book. Um, would you <laughs> just as a book, just as a political memoir, would you recommend this one or, or not? Uh, as a book it's not bad i mean it's it's certainly better than most political memoirs um you know it uh i mean if you ever cracked open a you know book by like marco rubio or something you know you 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 expect ghost written trash that's just like uh you know here's my non-threatening family and 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 here's why i just love america so much um obama is a pretty good writer, and I think it's it's certainly valuable historically as a sort of apologia for you know his decisions. And there are a lot of there's a lot of interesting kind of um, anecdotes in there, and a lot of like pretty good flourishes, I would say. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, your miles may vary individually, but I would say it's worth reading. You know, I don't think I would pay forty five bucks for it. I certainly didn't, but. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, if if you manage to find a copy someplace, then you know it's a uh, it's certainly in, interesting if infuriating at times. <laughs> okay, um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, he uh, you know, uh, as far as we know, he did write this this himself. Whereas, yeah, usually these sorts of things are written uh, by professional ghostwriters. And but Obama sort of made his you know <laughs> his na- a national name for himself through his writing and the speeches that we think in his early career, he wrote, he wrote for himself um, because he like wasn't famous enough to <laughs> have hire people to um, write speeches for him. And yeah. And then I, I was, you know, there was some, um, 
just in the past couple of days, I've seen th- maybe because people are talking about the book, I've seen some throwbacks to um, you know people who thought that uh, Bill Ayers, um, you know, the former Weatherman member, actually wrote Obama's <laughs> memoir. That was like a big conspiracy theory on the right. It's like there's no way this guy could write this book actually. So yeah. actually, it was Bill Ayers or you know um, maybe someone <laughs> you know uh, other like uh, boogeyman on the right. I remember there's there's also this bizarre theory that like. Obama's father was actually this different guy who was like a member of the American Co- Communist Party, and so yeah. all, like it was the, Francis Bacon. All the you know, so there was also the right wing craziness from ten fifteen years ago that is coming back to us. But no, it's like he's an intelligent person. He's a good writer. Like he he wrote this yeah. himself. But okay, so you know, read it if you're interested. But okay, but so you take really take issue more with um his uh, the presentation of the events surrounding the financial crisis in, in 08 and 09 and uh, what, what his administration did and what he did before even he um, was in office in late 2008 and, you know, what versus uh, reality. And so let me, um, uh, let me read another um, excerpt from your piece. So you, so you write Obama attempts to grapple with the massive failures of his presidency in a promised land um but ultimately, the book is slippery and unconvincing. America is circling the political toilet in part because Obama had the chance to fix many longstanding problems and did not rise to the occasion. A fact the former president is still stubbornly unwilling or unable to see. And you write that the um, and then you focus on what you say are the three most important policy decisions of his presidency, the 2008 bank bailout, the 2009 Recovery Act stimulus and his foreclosure policy. OK, so can you uh, talk a little bit more about what you think uh, Obama did wrong and how he is whitewashing it or, or is excuses or, or, or what's he saying now about it? Yeah. So, I mean, basically, uh, I could sort of characterize all three of these as being, you know, a problem of kind of timidity and uh, status quo bias. Uh, you know, in, in 2008, right. You had the, the TARP bailout being negotiated and, um, you know, George Bush was checked out from governance. He wasn't really doing much of anything. And, and it was uh, uh, Hank Paulson who was taking the lead and Timothy Geithner, who was the, uh, you know, the, the, the head of the New York Fed at the time. And uh, Paulson wanted, um, you know, a, 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 a blank check, basically. He, he, he felt like he was politically exposed and that the, the administration was too unpopular and he was taking all these decisions that had no sort of justification. And so he went to Congress, which was controlled by Democrats at the time, if you remember, thanks to the 2006 uh, blowout election. And uh, in particular to Obama, who was, um, I think, you know, at this time had not won an election. He was just widely expected to win. And he was a, uh, the nominee and sort of the leader of the party. And he said, okay, you know, we need to get this through. And Obama's like, all right, whatever you say, Paulson, and even says this in his memoir, it's like, if I wanted to be president, I need to start acting like it, something like this. I, I quote the line in the piece. Um, never thinking that to, to, to be suspicious of this guy and his motives. So you're talking about a Republican, conservative guy who was just before this head of Goldman Sachs. You know, like, why would you trust this guy to fix the crisis in any kind of, you know, particular way? And so uh, even though, you know, the, the first bailout, which is a total blank check, you know, just like three page bill that says here's seven hundred billion dollars that 
Treasury Secretary Paulson can do whatever the hell he wants with. Um, that didn't pass because of massive outrage. Uh, you know, and they came back for a second bite at the apple. House Democrats stuck in some more, uh, you know, oversight and stuff. So, and, so okay, so what? So yeah, so this is you know, twelve years ago, what was going? Almost, yeah. oh, I guess it was. We're in December now, but this is like twelve years and two months ago. And yeah, uh, so they, yeah, they tried to pass this initial bill close to a blank check. It failed, and then the stock market had like the biggest one day loss since 87 or something. I think it was actually 666 points because I remember that because yeah. everyone was, was joking about, you know, the satanic uh, number there. And, and so everyone freaked the fuck out and they realized, Oh, this is, you know, things are going bad here. And then they rallied and, and came back with some, um, with a second bill that maybe some, some of it was that people didn't realize how tenuous the stock market was, at the moment and also they like put in some stuff that would appeal to get you know get more votes from certain um representatives it, it failed in the yeah. house right yes i think so it, fa- it didn't i don't think they even took it to the senate but right. yeah it, it failed they put some more conditions on there that's where the uh the inspector general the, the neil borofsky's uh came from um but yeah i mean you know basically the their the recession was already starting it was it was already very bad um the 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 world financial system was like grinding to a halt something had to be done and um basically the approach that paulson and after him obama you know he obama got uh geithner on uh, uh to be his treasury secretary and then later renominated ben bernanke who's head of the federal reserve um the other key player in all this you know their approach was Basically, like, uh, you know, the system's melting down. We can't do anything about, like, fundamental reform. Uh, we have to just stuff money into it until it's not falling apart anymore. And not doing what is what was cl- what would clearly be, you know, a kind of small C conservative view to say, like, the system is broken. It needs reform. This should be the time to fix it now. Not later, after it's been reconstituted in its in its you know form, it's it's like incredibly rickety form, which is basically where it is now. Um, you know, like if if you are at all skeptical of you know financialization, you know, and like the outsourcing of you know manufacturing stuff, and and just looking at how wall street had been so irresponsible handing out all these loans to people including obama himself at the book he got a forty-five thousand dollar home equity loan without any inspection without with him only having to take in a couple of pay stubs they just handed him the money like clearly something is wrong with this uh system and yet they didn't do anything at the moment where it was most vulnerable where they could have actually fixed it instead of just sort of propping it back up again so that it could later, you know, implode, uh, you know, as it certainly will uh, over and over again until you actually address the underlying issues with the, 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 the thing, the, you know, the structure of the system, mm-hmm. which, which Dodd-Frank uh, did not do, um, you know, despite many, you know, salutary characteristics. And that I would say is a sort of general mistake. And it was this, it was the same, you know, in the stimulus discussion, it was sort of the flip side of this. It's like, so now, you know, we buffaloed this bank bailout through, which was really unfair, really unpopular, 
But it had to be done because otherwise the economy is going to collapse. We're going to have a second Great Depression. Now it comes time to pass a stimulus. And they're like, oh, we can only get $700 billion, $800 billion. We're not going to try even anything bigger than that because it's politically unrealistic somehow. We're not going to go to Congress and do the same routine we just did with TARP and say, if you don't pass this, the economy is going to die. Uh, we're going to, you know, go up to our own inspector and, uh, you know, Joe Manchin hat in hand uh, and say, oh, please, sir, what, what, uh, you know, how much, what is the lowest possible number that you could, you know, ask for? Um, and then even, you know, as, a, as Reed Hunt writes in his book on the crisis, he was an Obama fundraiser. He personally went to um, uh, Geithner and Larry Summers, who was, uh, you know, Obama's uh, head of the Council of Economic Advisors, mm -hmm. and uh, Peter Orsag, who is the Office of Management Budget Head, and pitched him on a green infrastructure bank, say, because $1 appropriated gives you $10 lent, to, you know, uh, increase your stimulus bank for your buck by 1,000%. Um, they didn't want to do any of that. Um, Alice Rivlin, who was a famous austerity, you know, deficit hawk, who set up the uh, Congressional Budget Office, told them they could game the budget window, 10-year budget window, saying, okay, this is calculated over 10 years, so you can do a whole bunch of stimulus, and then you can uh, offset it by putting tax hikes that don't take effect for five years after the crisis mm -hmm. will hopefully be solved. Which is, which is kind of like the inverse of the Bush tax cuts expiring after 10 years. It's right, in order to fit yeah. this 10-year budgetary window that, you know, is important for all these bizarre reasons. Yeah, or they could have refinanced all the state and local debt, you know, which is usually fairly high interest. You could say, well, the federal government has, uh, you know, basically zero interest rate at this moment on its debt. So we'll just refinance everything and give states and uh, cities a bunch of budgetary running room because they ended up having to cut a whole bunch of, you know, jobs and services because they're, you know, ran out of money, didn't do that either. And, um, yeah, we can get into foreclosure. That's a, that's a complicated story too. But I think, again, this shows you the, the basic problem with the way Obama's presenting himself. He says it's that, that, that it, we can't nationalize the banks to get rid of all the bad debt, you know, because it would have like done violence to the social order. It would have been, uh, it would have been too radical. It would have, you know, made things worse. It's it's not, you know, small C conservative or, you know, uh, politically cautious or anything like that to fail to fix big problems because they require big action. That's just timidity. You know, what happened was incredibly radical in its way. Um, it was a uh, lost decade. We had growth in this country went down by 40 percent, never recovered. It, it was, you know, disastrous on the ways that all the ways that even neoliberals like to judge their own uh, success. Um, and it's just, you know, I think it's rhetorical cover for a guy who just didn't rise to the occasion um, and, you know, wants to pretend that the reason was that he was just too, uh, you know, he was too responsible rather than the opposite. Mm -hmm. OK, so let me. Um... Let me offer what uh, the the pushback that that came to my mind, and you you know you know the details of this era. 
I haven't read the book, so you know both Obama's version of the details and the action, and whether they di- diverge from reality uh, better than better than I do. But let me let me um, uh, 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 offer somewhat of a rebuttal. So, so I, I guess I would you know when I reread your piece, I was surprised you know that you say the three most important policy decisions of his presidency: the bank bailout, the recovery act, and his foreclosure. Well, the, first, the bank bailout wasn't his presidency, technically. I mean, not even technically. It was it was in 2008. He wasn't inaugurated until January 2009. So this was, you know, uh, Bush's uh, appointees uh, trying to solve this crisis. And he was involved in some way, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a sure thing that he was going to win. And, you know, the, the, the fact that the crisis helped probably push him, push his margins up or something. But, you know, it was still... Like two months earlier, it was it was pretty close, and I believe when Sarah Palin was picked, you know, maybe the polls were saying uh, gave McCain uh, the lead slightly. So you know, he was first a first term senator in late two thousand eight. So he participated in this, but he wasn't making the decisions, and he wasn't you know the Senate Majority Leader or anything like that. And so he, he was leading the negotiations on the Democratic side in Congress. Okay, and the and his advisors told Hunt that they could have gotten more concessions. They could have gotten limits on executive compensation or more homeowner relief. They just didn't ask for it because they thought it would be irresponsible. Right. And, you know, as, as you were describing what they didn't do, a line, uh, <laughs> a, a quote came to me that supposedly came from a member of, you know, the White House, uh, you know, never let a crisis go to waste or something like that. Yeah. And the person who said that, Rahm Emanuel, supposedly. Yeah. I think this was quote, you know, this is like someone saying he said this in a meeting or something. And like that was taken by like the the right to mean like, uh, you know, we're going to start putting conservatives in FEMA camps or something. Um, But, you know, so at the time, Rahm was like, we're, you know, we need to do something big here. And for whatever reason, it didn't end up being as big as necessary. So, you know, so part of it is they didn't know how big the crisis was at the time. It's easy to look back. Yeah. You know, they underestimated the size of the fallen GDP. Um, and so that uh, changed how aggressive they wanted to be in the stimulus. Correct me if I'm wrong. You know, in 2008, like there was, the crisis came sort of like slowly and quickly, like in, I believe in March, which one failed first? Bear Stearns or Lehman? I think Bear Stearns failed. Bear Stearns. Yeah. And, well, it, and, didn't, it didn't fail. Right, right? It was about to fail. And, the, and, which is the Bush uh, administration saved it or, you know, put it on like a glide path um, so that it wouldn't, there wouldn't be like yeah, bank runs. Shotgun marriage. Bank runs or something. Right. Yeah. And so it ended up with uh, like Bank of America or something. And then they, they didn't do that with when Lehman Brothers was about to fail. And that's what sparked the crisis. So they took some like extraordinary steps to save Bear Stearns of something that was like, not like what had ever been done maybe since the Great Depression or something. And then they decided we can't do this again. And I guess in retrospect, that was a stupid decision because it sparked this, you know, the crisis coming on very quickly instead of maybe having more slowly, they could have responded to it um, more effectively. But so I think, yeah, so they, at the time it was like, is the whole, like, is the whole thing going to fall apart? And obviously, you know, they like Bush didn't want to let the, get, let the big banks go under and neither, neither did Obama. Now, you know, like the question of nationalization was sort of a live one, I guess, at the time. And or should you like put them in, I don't know, government receivership and they fire all the top executives or something. And then like six months later, it would return to the private sector or something. So they didn't do anything, you know, like that. They didn't, you know, no one was, as far as I know, no one at any big bank was prosecuted. And they all like got their, <laughs> you know, they got their bonuses and 
so on and so forth. And so Obama definitely could have been a lot like meaner to Wall Street in terms of like some sort of uh, like a sense of justice. Like these assholes screwed this whole thing up and it's time for them to be punished. Now, would that have been good or bad for the It would have made us all feel better to see these guys yeah. in in handcuffs or whatever, or seeing them, you know, getting their billion dollar bonuses uh, clawed back. Would it have been good for the economy or not? I, I don't know exactly. Um, it's, 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 I mean, you could think that it would be justice, but it would have been worse for the economy if we're like, you know, Lehman Brothers. And now Goldman Sachs, too, like you are essentially no more. And, you know, we're calling the shots now. Like you can see that being that extending the acute economic crisis at the time. I, I have no idea if that, you know, if that would have happened, but, it, you know. Yeah. Well, that, no. So, so I think you could break those things apart. Um, you know, the, the, the main reason I would say, aside from, you know, equity fairness to say that like you guys called the cause the crisis, you should, uh, you should not benefit from it. You should, you should, uh, be punished. You know, that's, that's just, that's just decent politics, you might say. Right. Um, um, you know, that was why TARP was so unpopular. But I think that the economic problem had to do with the, you know, the, the, the allocation of the losses from the bubble. You know, you had all these uh, homes, which, you know, were, were hugely overvalued. And so you and then you had all of these subprime assets that were based on the value of these homes. And so, you, you know, you had lending that had taken place against uh, assets, which, you know, had 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 lost in many cases, like half or 75 percent of their value, who's going to take the hit? Right. And so they were they they didn't look to to ahead to, to think about, you know, how do we get rid of this at the time? Because it's like, OK, the system is seizing up. And, you know, as you say, yeah, it went into full crisis mode when when Lehman Brothers um, uh, w w declared bankruptcy. And that, I, I believe, was the immediate precipitating event for the fed to basically seize control of aig the big uh the big world's biggest insurance company right that was also the counterparty for a lot of uh, bets the hedges that the big banks had made against the subprime collapse if aig goes down the whole system goes down and so the sensible way to deal with this you know from a from a kind of accounting perspective you might even say would be to go okay there's this massive, there's a massive losses, trillions of dollars are have just evaporated. Who is best able to take those hits? And the answer should be the banks. The banks should should be, uh, you know, because th these are you know composed of, of wealthy individuals, and you know they they are supposed to be the people who like they the reason they get so much money is because they allocate risk. You know they take a risk to 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 make these lending, and then you say, okay, if this is going to drive you into bankruptcy, well, that's when the government's going to step in, just like they did with AIG, to make sure that the these firms don't fail. And we'll we'll keep them we'll keep them solvent we'll keep them running so the system doesn't collapse and we're going to get rid of all of this debt through bankruptcy rather than pushing it onto homeowners and that brings up I think the worst part of the early Obama record which was the foreclosure problem right and that's what they did you know because they didn't fix the they didn't allocate the subprime losses during the TARP bailout they still had all of these loans on the books 
And the what they chose to do was to push the losses onto homeowners, the people who are least able to take the hit. Um, you know, they they uh, previously Obama had promised House Democrats that he was going to support cram down, which would alter the bankruptcy law such that uh, homeowners could write down the value of their um, mortgage to the the value of the home in a bankruptcy proceeding. So right. if you had an $800,000 home that's lost half its value, you could declare bankruptcy. In bankruptcy, you're usually allowed to keep your home, write off half that value, get you, you know, squared away. Um, Geithner convinced Obama to renege on that promise. They, they, they told House Democrats over and over, don't put it in all these must-pass bills. The stimulus was one. Um, and uh, so it never passed to this day. Uh, another thing they did as part of the, the the Home Assistance Mortgage Program HAMP, they didn't include any principal reductions in the program, which is the most effective form of homeowner relief. Principal reductions, obviously, reducing the amount owed on the principal. The reason they didn't do either of these things is because get uh, bankrupting out that debt or reducing the mortgage principal that blows a hole in the bank balance sheets that they just spent all this money propping up instead of dealing with the problem. And so, you know, I definitely, I, I agree with you in one sense that it, it's not just Obama. I think what, what he was is a culmination of a total intellectual failure to understand what was happening on Wall Street. Because that was a real, like, whenever the, the TARP thing was going on, Democrats didn't even have a counteroffer. They just went with whatever Paulson said because they had no idea what was going on, no idea what to do. And, you right. know, they had been the party of passing all these deregulation. You know, Clinton passed two big packages of, of financial deregulation in the 90s and or 90s and one in 2000, as I as I recall. And so, um, you know, he, he was just sort of going with the flow. But I think it still speaks to his, you know, a, a particular kind of institutional timidity, you might say, that he didn't. Uh, you know, look at this world historical thing and this this crisis and think, whoa, hang on. You know, maybe Wall Street seemed like it was running fine, like we were doing globalization, the Lexus and the olive tree, you know, the, the <laughs> ca ca capital, uh, you know, no borders um, and uh, so on and so forth. But when that whole thing exploded, it seems to me like it really called for a drastic rethinking of the entire system. And that's what we didn't get. Right. So, okay. So you, so you used the word that I was about to bring up, which is you said in, uh, institutional timidity. I think what a lot of people didn't understand at the time, and a lot of people still don't understand about Obama is he is an institutionalist to his very bones. And should, I mean, looking back at this, should we, should we be shocked by this? He went to Columbia and Harvard law and was the editor of the Harvard law review. There's not a lot of, you know, radicals uh, who get that position or at least not in you know 1982 whenever that was. And because of all the nonsense that was talked about him on both sides, much more nonsense on the right, that he's a you know Kenyan uh, radical Marxist. He wasn't actually born in America. His father is secretly, you know, a couple dozen different guys, possibly, blah, blah, blah. And Dinesh D'Souza bullshit. It, it, and the fact that he is black and has an unusual name, an unusual life biography, um, you know, who was seen as like this radical transformational figure when really he's, he's just an institutionalist. Like his, his plan to, that he embraced um, for, you know, health reform was 
um, propping up the system as it existed and bring, bringing people who don't have access to health insurance into the system and essentially paying off the insurance industry to, you know, to accept these poor, sicker people uh, into the system. So, you know, he, he made the entire system, insurance industry system stronger, um, or at least that was sort of the goal of Obamacare. Maybe it didn't actually work. And if you, you know, look through his decisions, like he wasn't going to be the person who um, took a sword and cut down Wall Street. Um, he was the person who's like, okay, you know, Wall Street is a big institution. We need to, like, protect it. And I, like, so he would have been, you know, if he had taken all the, like, assholes at the top or even uh, somewhere towards the middle of the, of the big Wall Street banks, uh, the big investment banks, especially to, if, you know, if he had taken them to task and excoriated them or even tried to have the Justice Department, um, you know, go after them, I don't know. It just wasn't, it's just not who he is. Like he, like, there's no, like his introduction onto the American stage was there's no red states, no blue states. Like we're all, we're all in this together. So a lot <laughs> of this is pablum, but like it's pop- yeah. it was popular pablum back then. And, you know, people yeah. really, after the Bush, after the Bush years, people were like, yeah, this guy wants to bring us together. Like, I think a lot of people actually thought that like it was going to work. And so why didn't it? Well, the GOP decided total opposition from the very beginning would, would be their strategy. And it, it basically worked. And yeah, he wasn't like some fire-breathing radical. He was like a center-left moderate, really, <laughs> in his heart. And and so, I mean, the, right. things, the, thing, the things you haven't noted are like, I believe, um, you know, the stimulus passed with like three Republican votes combined yeah. from both houses of Congress. You know, they had the Democrats had 58 votes for a long time because Al Franken was not seated because his election was very close and there's all these lawsuits. He wasn't seated for six months. Ted Kennedy died. Uh, so there was, there was like an eight month period of time or something where they actually had a filibuster proof majority and Mitch McConnell was now in charge of the Senate GOP and he was running on, t- you know, total opposition and said his main goal was to uh, ensure that Obama was a one term president. So he failed on that, but he, you know, McConnell succeeded sort of overall in changing the norms of how, you know, how DC works. And, you know, he certainly proved himself to be uh, very able and, uh, person who, you know, getting judges confirmed and, and doing, you know, doing the will of Trump or whoever, you know, <laughs> whoever it is. So, so there's, there's that, that, that Obama just like is really, you know, he wasn't a radical. He's not a radical. He's basically, you know, a moderate Democrat. I mean, look who he picked for his vice president, uh, a, uh, another, an even more like centrist Democrat. And yeah, so there's that. And there's one other thing I wanted to mention, which was um, a name that maybe will send, uh, <laughs> send us, you know, back a decade or more, Rick Santelli, uh, who was this guy who gave a, uh, he was doing like a broadcast on, you know, CNBC or something from the Chicago Board of Trade at, floor, at the floor there. And he started talking about uh, maybe there should be a modern day Tea Party. Um, because, and the, the thing that he was talking about in that instance was refinancing uh, mortgages, I believe. And so the date of that, I, I looked it up, was February 19th, 2009. So it's a month into the Obama presidency. And there you have the seeds of the opposition movement that would, you know, take over Congress and in some ways, you know, sort of take over our lives if we if we connect Trump to that sort of that sort of movement so that they had more sort of sensible goals about the deficit and stuff. But um, but, the, you know, the thing that the, the thing that that rallied the Tea Party wasn't like anything to do with the bankers. It was this idea that, like, the guy down the block, like, took out a second mortgage to do, like, renovations to his house and he was going to get a, get away with not paying for it, and that was unfair, and and that was the rallying cry that 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 led the uh, you know the the GOP opposition, and that and that was sadly effective at the time. 
I mean, it was it was effective because the Democrats they allowed it to be effective. I would say. <laughs> well, and, okay. And the, well, I mean, the people were very mad, but um, so let let me deal with that that part in first. So it's like I I, I think the best example of this there there's giving in to somebody like Santelli or thinking of him as being like a representative of some kind of like mass political, uh, you know, in, in unstoppable political movement. Um, remember Acorn? Uh, yes, I did. Th- this is, this, this was a, a group that did voter registration, largely nonpartisan, but, you know, it was kind of institutionally affiliated with the Democratic Party in a sense. And that James O'Keefe, uh, the fa- Boy, famous... he's been around for a long time. He's, he's dropping more tapes today, that James O'Keefe. You can't, can't keep him down. Yeah, he did a bunch of misleadingly edited videos right. that were implying that a handful of these, these places had, like, somehow, you know, or tried to hook him up with prostitutes or something like that. And it was all, it was basically all lies. And the Democratic Congress killed Acorn based on this obvious fraud like they they got um they had a they had they just had a, a panic attack because Fox News was was criticizing them the right, other right example, so that yeah so okay so that was cowardly and yeah. most of these you know most of these people are cowards essentially and you call Obama, I believe in the last line of your review I yes you call Obama well, think, a coward um yes. I I wouldn't go that far for him but I think for the rank and file you know, Democratic congressperson, I would say they're essentially a coward. But um, but the system, you know, the system a, as it existed then was amenable to someone like James O'Keefe or Rick Santelli, you know, sort of hijacking the conversation. And, and you know, and then you have Obama, you know, giving speeches about, like, you know, you talked about anger, like Obama is the anti-anger candidate, um, and which makes the whole like the roots of Obama's rage, like thesis from D'Souza and these types so absurd because, you know, he's like never displays anger whatsoever and is always calm, cool, collected. And maybe that was, you know, not a good fit for the uh, the emotions of the country, but that's who he was. And, he, you know, he wouldn't change that. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, uh, fo- you know, Fox News threw their lot in with whatever James O'Keefe was doing or with these uh, like they helped build up the Tea Party. Uh, you know, uh, a wealthy pair of Midwestern uh, brothers, uh, you know, gave a lot of money to to uh, support their uh, support their activities. Uh, although one of them, I guess, seems to regret it now. Uh, the, I'm referring to the Koch brothers, of course. And yeah, just you know, you, know, you know, the entire system was set up so that you know the the um, the Koch brothers get their way and Acorn gets undone. It's like doesn't even exist anymore. So so you could try to like what what are the things that could have been done to try to upend that dynamic I, I i'm not sure what barack obama you know could have done basically i mean so the reason i was interested in talking to you about this to begin with is like you know did obama basically do more or less kind of like the best job he could have or did he really like screw the pooch and like he fucked it up and i guess in your view like he was just the wrong man for the job at the time and and he was uh, i would say he was the wrong man in charge of the wrong party because again, it's not just him, but it's a, it's also it is also him. I mean, he's a, he's the person that Democrats defer to. He's very popular among the uh, uh, rank and file to this day, and uh, you know he was. He's selling like, his memoir for forty five dollars, and there's going to be a second one. <laughs> it's a bestseller, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, um, just like Ulysses Grant, but <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, 
you know, for an example, inside the administration, I once interviewed Shirley Sherrod. Remember her? Oh, God, um, yes. Breitbart did a similar thing where they did a misleadingly edited video. Um, she was at a NAACP conference talking about how basically she she had a religious experience that that that, uh, you know, a, taught her to to help a poor white person and they cut off the end of the video making it seem like she she uh you know was had told him to go packing without without the you know per- and uh the administration panicked so badly once they heard about this on Fox News that that uh the Department of Agriculture called her up made her pull over to the side of the road and type out her resignation on her blackberry before they even heard her side of the story and you know, it's just like an entire generation of politicos who had taught themselves to internalize the Fox News worldview as being like the the, the dominant, you know, force of American politics. That like we can't do homeowner relief because this banker asshole is going to complain on television about it to a bunch of other bankers. As if this, you know, we there's no way we could possibly spin our way out of this. Well, but if, if, but if we look if back you, on it, like, okay, so the Sherrod thing, I agree, that's like probably one of the, you know, most like shameful <laughs> things that, you know, the the Obama administration did. I think it was like, was it Tom Vilsack? All these names from Tom 10 years Vilsack, ago. Yeah. He was the one who like, you know, he was the agriculture secretary. He cashiered her. And then like a couple of days later, like Obama called up. Once it became clear this is all bullshit, called up and like apologized, like you know we want to rehire you, and she said no, which was you know that's her decision, obviously. Yeah, so that was pathetic, and and yeah, was an example of you know the the Democrats letting the GOP write the tune and, and like dancing along to it. But if you look at like you know the the big uh, grassroots left movement at this time was Occupy Wall Street, and and we, you know comparing that to the Tea Party, you know Occupy Wall Street was doing these things where like. Um, leaderless meetings and you know the people's microphone or whatever where someone would yeah. give a speech by like you know spreading it was saying everybody like repeats a few syllables so it was all this sort of stuff that doesn't that really like, uh you know affect was... actually power in the united states showing as shown by you know the the tea party getting their like you know their crazy people like literally elected in the congress and maybe there's like a little wherever in zuccotti plaza or whatever it was called there's like a little monument to occupy wall street and I some people made the argument that like the Sanders movement grew out of that. I, I didn't really see that see the logic of that, but yeah, I just like you know the the GOP is much better at taking populist anger and turning it towards their ends, as shown by right. the fact that Trump is getting seemingly millions of our fellow Americans to believe that like there's a grand plot to steal the election from him that involves the late Hugo Chavez, and like they'll just believe. I mean, it really is kind of like they'll like the GOP the GOP elite. Has such like has like contempt for the GOP base and will feed them whatever shit they want at the moment, and they know that they'll eat eat that shit. Whereas the the yeah. the liberal or left base or whatever like doesn't have that relationship with the democratic elites, and they won't eat their shit, and they won't dance, they they won't do whatever they say or support you know whatever the the well, line of the day is as we you know as they do with, with as the right does with Trump. Well, then I think this you've put your finger on the problem though is that Democrats don't want. To, to harness any of that populist anger because their whole political, their whole policy orientation is involved or is, is about deflating, tamping down on populism so that they can appease the donor class, you know, that, 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 or the, like the, you know, the, the, the groups that are perceived to be necessary, you know, Wall Street, the insurance industry and so on. So you can't do 
what would be a what in my view would be a completely reasonable political approach to say like you know let's do some vox.com wonkery what is the most important determinant of the success of an incumbent party in an election the state of the economy what determines the state of the economy in 2009 2010 the size of this stimulus package and then you bring in all the blue dogs and you club them over the head with the general theory of employment interest money by john maynard keynes and you say hey look guys Look, this is not normal deficit time. We are in a crisis. And if the unemployment is 10% on election day in November 2010, you all are going to lose your seats. So you got to get behind this big stimulus. I and mean, people like Paul Krugman were saying, you know, the, the data could be an underestimate. What you need to do, you're only going to get one chance. Take, take whatever number you think it, it should be and add 50% just in case. Can't hurt. They didn't, they didn't do any of that stuff. And um, similarly with mortgages, I think, you know, the, the way through that would have just been like, okay, we're going to get some, some, uh, you know, some outrage and people are going to be pissed on Fox news, but we will have a clearly defensible benefit that we can, we can point to people. And if we just sort of eat the bad media cycles from the right, we go out and defend ourselves with or confidence. We're like, Hey, look, we bailed out the banks. We're helping the homeowners too. people. Maybe they didn't make the best decisions at the time, but we're just sort of getting them back to basics, back to flat instead of $800,000 underwater or whatever. And that, I, you know, that this is, I think, again, it comes back to the sort of character question, you know, and, and, and the, how the party as a whole it's just so unwilling to, to, to govern, you know, except in cases of where, you know, rich people are in trouble um, because, you know, it's, it's, and I mean, I guess this sort of bears on the institutionalist thing because yeah, Columbia is an institution and, and, and the insurance industry is an institution as well, but so is like American home ownership. That's an institution and the rule of law, you know, I mean, the, the, something um, we haven't got to is the robo signing scandal that, that came out in 2010, um, you know, it's because during the bubble years, the banks had lost all the paperwork for all these loans, pretty much. Um, I mean, credible estimates think that it's probably most of it. Uh, and so they would go to foreclose on people who weren't current on their payments. So they didn't have the right paperwork because it was gone. It never had been done right in the first place. Maybe. Right. And so they would just forge it. And they, they had whole floors of people doing document fraud hundreds of times a day, being paid like 13 bucks an hour. It was like, you know, big, thick mortgage files being like, yep, I have personal knowledge of these documents, boom, personal knowledge of these documents, boom. And they've, you know, Obama didn't, uh, he kind of stepped in and got a kind of wrist slap settlement that was, that was partly just straight up fake. They got credit for billions of dollars in uh, write-offs that are legally impermissible to uh, collect in uh, states like California. And it's like, what, you know, <laughs> how is it a defense of the institutions of the United States to allow like this kind of industrial scale crime to go unpunished because, you know, it's like, like uh, 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 Eric, Attorney General Eric Holder said at a Senate committee, like the banks are too big to prosecute. It's like, well, uh, financial stability again. We didn't deal with the problem. And so, like, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's something I think you see in a lot of instances, you know, like uh, 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 today in the party where, like, uh, you know, do we close down the, the, you know, state? Do we take vigorous action as state leaders of the party or city leaders to 
to deal with the pandemic. You know, back in March, Cuomo and and Andrew, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York and uh, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio were just sort of squabbling and fighting over doing something. It wasn't until it was too late, you know, that 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 the disease was already running rampant that they actually started to close stuff down. And I think that it's still just a major problem with the way the the the, the party kind of views itself is in this kind of perpetual defensive crouch mm-hmm. when it would be completely not even on not even on like a, a, a radical political grounds or just on a sort of pragmatism that Obama says he endorses and being like, you know, reasonable and sensible and not, you know, coloring outside the lines. It's like, well, if you have a big hole, you need a big shovel to fill it up. Right. I mean, I think, you know, I, 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 I think so, you know, like some of your criticisms of the Democratic Party and maybe most of them are accurate. I mean, like, you know, if we look back to the stimulus that Trump and, you know, and, and the government passed in like, you know, week four or five or whatever of the pandemic crisis, it was yeah. much closer to the, wasn't there a voice vote? I could be wrong about that. I, at some point there was like one of the houses because, you know, people had like fled and they weren't coming to the actual you know, building because people were still super forget about everything. And, and, um, yeah, so they, they did like a $1.4 trillion stimulus or something on, on a voice vote. So, I mean, the, the, obviously the, the, uh, emergencies are, are, are different and maybe we can't really, we can't compare them exactly, but, um, if we, you know, it, it, so if Hillary Clinton had won and then the pandemic came, should, could she and the Democrats have ever pulled off doing a voice vote? I don't think so. But the, the GOP, uh, especially the rank and file are just, you know, they're just happy, to do whatever the leaders say and they just want to like get tax cuts and make sure no one can have an abortion. And, and like, that's about it. Whereas, you know, the Democrats, like they all have their interests and it's much more, you know, and, and they all have to be like mollified and think back to like the Cornhusker kickback and all these things for, you know, from passing Obamacare that like we, everyone had their own little thing that needed to be, you know, they need to be paid off or, or, and you know, not literally, but they, you know, they needed to have their interests satisfied where it's like there just isn't the symmetry between the parties, and so you no. know, like like Trump can, I mean, just look how look how much the the uh, GOP uh, office holders have stuck with Trump a month after the election when it's clear that he's entirely full of shit, and but like barely anyone, you know, like two or three senators have have said the emperor has no clothes in terms of this fraud bullshit, like where and compared to Hillary Clinton conceding you know, like at 2 a.m. Um, in 2016. Sure. So like there just isn't like there just isn't a symmetry and it has to do with conservative media and what sorts of people like get involved in politics and their and their various uh, reasons for doing so. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the 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 GOP is just always like unless there's some sort of fundamental change, like they are just better at falling in line, getting this shit done. What's strange is they yeah. fell, fell in line behind this guy who has like no stated principles and doesn't care about any of it to begin with. Only cares about himself, but you know, and, and this is going off on a tangent. But that's why you know this whole debate about fascism, not fascism, coup, not coup. It's it, like if, if there's someday uh, someone who is like Trump but is actually capable and intelligent and knows how to do it, uh, you know, tries to pull something off. Like it, it, it seems a lot riskier than the clownish attempt that he's he's doing right now where everyone's like, yeah, we'll just you know, like, he's having his temper tantrum. Like eventually we all realize this will, this will go away. But you know, the, the, the institutional, the institutional GOP is, 
all they'll do is complain about him on background at this point, and uh, it, it's very pathetic. But but let me so you can say one more thing about that, but then I want to talk about the Biden cabinet a little bit also because that is kind of a, you know you're, you're ta- the time that you were talking about was um, you know from when the crisis Obama elected Obama assembling his cabinet inauguration and those early decisions and we're kind of like in that moment 12 years later um and and so you wrote you wrote a piece uh headline uh t- a team of retreads and um you in which you were critical of the uh the cabinet the cabinet uh, nomination so far and um yeah so uh, so, somewhat critical uh, yeah so okay does anything else you want to say about 10, 12 years ago, uh, the Obama years yeah. before we move on to the, to our I mean, cursed I, present. I will say, I think that the party has, has learned a bit, you know, the, the, the $600, um, unemployment boost unemployment benefits. That was huge. I mean, that was the most generous response of any country in the world, I believe. Um, and that came from Michael Bennett, who's a centrist, you know, he's a, he's not a radical, and it was partly be just because the, the state unemployment insurance systems are so janky and old, but still, you know, credit where it due. Um, nevertheless, Pelosi didn't didn't uh, you know use her leverage back in March when the, the thing was collapsing, um, the 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 stock market was collapsing to get uh, you know a longer term relief and, and critically aid to states and cities. They kept saying we're going to get. We're going to have more bites of the apple, and all the lefties were like, "No, you're not." Yeah, I mean, this is, this is, I think, another one where, you know, in, in hindsight, it, it wasn't clear, you know, how long this thing was going to last, and obvi- and it's lasted longer than I, I assume Nancy Pelosi thought it was going to last. And I, I was actually talking to someone a couple of days ago when I was when it, it was like, you know, the first week of April, and they were saying like, you know, this is going to keep on going until like June or July, and I was like, June or July, like we're going to be like this for till June or July, and that's why I'd be like. You know, I, w- I would be celebrating if if it had lasted two or three months instead of what we're at now. So yeah, so they yeah. it was again kind of like a they didn't understand the full scope of the problem and they kind of played it maybe more towards the safe end than than otherwise. But still, it was like one point four trillion dollars on a voice vote, and I, I don't know that initial like thing three. seems mostly successful except they didn't keep it going. Oh yeah, and so that's where I'd give them a little bit of credit is to say that 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 you know rather than worrying about the deficit and trying to under you know have the smallest thing possible, they just flung huge amounts of money at it, um, and that's good. Yeah, and similarly with the Biden's appointments, you know, I I have some criticisms of the way that like these guys spent their time, you know, doing consulting that was just frankly stinks of corruption. Um, well, you know, in the last four years, but at least so far, we haven't seen any actual Republicans, you know, remember Obama kept doing that. There will probably uh, be one. I mean, usually there is one, I, like, like Bush, had a, Bush had a Democrat, I think it's usually transportation, which is funny that like the Rom thing is, seems to be focusing on transportation, but like. If they do, if they could get Pat Toomey or some other Republican senator to go, I, yeah, I would accept that. that yeah, would that be would be the smart thing. Term. I mean, the other thing that, that another, so well, let me just this connects Obama, Obama fuck ups to the current era is like and it has to, and it, your title the title of your article remind me of it. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I've, I've jokingly ha- joke, half jokingly have not said that, you know, the person responsible for Trump is Doris Kearns Goodwin, because she wrote this book, Team of Rivals, <laughs> that 
you know, uh, Obama read uh, at some point like, when he was running for president and it convinced him. And so it's about Lincoln's cabinet and Lincoln brought in the people who are running against him to, you know, like William Seward and, and so forth to be uh, to be his cabinet. And it, you know, I guess it worked well. And so he thought, I'll bring uh, Hillary Clinton in. And if he hadn't had that idea to bring Clinton in, then she wouldn't have had the stature to become the clear front runner in 2016. And maybe she wouldn't have even run at all because, you know, she would have wouldn't have had really any foreign policy experience. So um, so, yeah, so. That idea, the and, and so he also brought in like Bill Richardson, and obviously Biden uh, was on there. Thankfully, um, uh, what's his name? Um, the uh, <laughs> the guy who had the affair from North Carolina. I can't uh, John, Edwards. John Edwards. I can't remember if that scandal broke before or after, but anyway, he was not there. But um, but yeah, and so like one of the things Obama did was he wanted um, Janet Napolitano to be running the Department of Homeland Security when she was you know she was a senator from Arizona, I believe at the time, and. And then that that um, that enabled. Oh, no, she was the governor of, of Arizona, and that and that enabled that, concert, that. Like a GOP woman filled in, like became the governor. I have the details somewhat wrong, but like so she started. So like that was like a key, like taking some person. Like oh, we we just need Janet Napolitano. It's so important that Janet Napolitano be the person running this administration, this uh, cabinet department, instead of and it like he didn't like play out the like bare politics of it that it let um arizona i I believe uh you know like a gop governor come in there as this woman i can't remember her name but she was kind of a bet noir for a long time of 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 the left because she was very anti-immigration and she like it it was kind of like a a, kind of a precursor of trump and and like the harshness of her anti-immigrant rhetoric and if he had just left napolitano there like maybe that wouldn't have happened and so the thing that i've been kind of pleased with in biden's appointment so far is he's not going for the team of rivals all-stars sort of thing like we yeah. need a, like tony blinken the average person has no idea who tony blinken is i i've haven't heard a lot of these people the the, the homeland um they were deputy yeah it's like De- okay so that guy uh uh was um was tony blinken was deputy under deputy undersecretary of something in the state department yeah, the so, guy. Okay, so, so probably he knows more or less what the job is and yeah. and that's sort of good when we look at like trump's cabinet like like, first of all, can you name a single deputy or undersecretary or anything in terms of, of like, in the entire Trump administration? It's all these, like, just GOP political hacks. And, but then oh, you those had, seats were vacant for years. Yeah, or, they, or, yeah, or no one was there. So it's, it, it's just, like, in some ways it does, you know, like, the grown-ups are back in charge is the, is the stereotype. But, like, there will actually be people who are kind of, like, government bureaucrat types who sort of know what to do in this position. And it won't just be, like, you know, kindergarten uh, or, or the chaos that we've that we've seen um, from the administration. So yeah, so the fact that like they named this guy who I never even heard of to be um, is it Homeland Security or something? Um, you 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 noted his name, but like I, I didn't even recognize it. And I think Mickey Kaus appearing on this platform said he thought he was okay. Um, and but yeah, just like okay, someone who kind of knows what the deal is, so that he'll sort of do it and then and it'll probably be more or less okay. It's like, that's sort of the whole Biden, like, yeah, he knows what to do. Like, it won't be crazy anymore. Like that, that that's like the main selling point of, of Joe Biden, I think. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's in general a reasonable idea to, to pick people who are, um, or Alejandro Mayorkas. Yes. That's what I was thinking of. Um, were you familiar the, with this person before? No. Yeah. I never I heard the name I, before. Yeah, I heard his name a couple times, but yeah, I mean, the people who had, who had been the deputy previously and moving them up a rank, like that seems perfect. That's like perfectly reasonable. I mean, my criticism of them 
was more about the, especially the foreign policy team. They just set up all these, you know, basically come bribe us consultant shops. You know, one of them was named after, it was like West Exec, named after the West West Wing, or it seems pretty clearly to be a reference to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, come trade on my government uh, experience. And, um, you know, and, and so in that sense, and the sense of the, like, they're all institutional creatures of the institutional Democratic Party for the most part. Um, and often pretty elderly, Janet Yellen is 74, I believe. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't speak to me that very well that they will just be leaning on every possible executive authority to do the kind of calculations I was describing before. You know, to be like, well, we got to make sure the economy is in as good a shape as possible in 2022. We're going to get rinsed in the midterms. Right. Um, you know, so uh, I guess it will de- it. It remains to be seen, you know, as I say in the piece, uh, nothing would be happier than if, you know, Neera Tandon turns the Office of Management and Budget into a, you know, just a, a crusading, uh, um, you know, but a juggernaut of justice. Uh, <laughs> okay, I, I, wanted, just... I wanted to bring up, bring up Neera Tandon. Um, and so, okay, so the people who are watching this, uh, either probably you haven't heard of Neurotandon or you have a very strong opinion of Neurotandon. And so who is, so if for people who have never heard of Neurotandon, who is Neurotandon? She's been a long time, I think the president and CEO of the Center for American Progress, which is a democratic think tank, you know, sort of a shadow, shadow government, you might say. That yeah. It kind of set up to be like the heritage of the democratic party. Yeah, and they they raise a ton of money. I mean, this is this is why Nira has been the president of CAP for so long, um, because she can raise money from Clinton world, you know, all the big Clinton donors, as well as, you know, Walmart and the, uh, you know, United Arab Emirates and stuff like that. Right. And, and so it, um, it, it was thought that if Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, Tandon may have been chief of staff. Yeah, that was a that was a likely pick. And um why they're giving I mean OMB is it's a very boring it's like the you know regulatory clearinghouse for for the executive branch and then they prepare the budget every year. And it's real dull, you know, real uh I mean you think it's like who's a who's a great type of personality to to run this i mean you you want to you want someone who is quiet competent low drama um it's often the the phrase green eye eye shades is often used when when this uh department is described in the press because it's yeah they're like running the numbers and yeah doing stuff that is rarely gets mentioned in the press of in terms of budgeting and very boring stuff And, and so, and the, well, the thing you haven't mentioned about Tannen is that she is extremely online. Yes. And, and basically, I guess it must have started before 2016, but she, like, you know, she argues with people on Twitter and yeah. um, also uh, just, yes, yeah, like she is like a born poster. And, and, and I, I wondered, like, how does she have the time to like be on Twitter so much? Like when she <laughs> has like this job and, and it's very strange. And I actually muted her name because I, I just didn't care about her at all. And, and so she's a people on the left really don't like her for various reasons um, <laughs> that I'll just leave it there. But um, 
Yeah, so so why why was she picked for this role? So the conspiracy theory would be, uh, you know, we got to give the 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 Senate GOP a sacrificial lamb so that they can um, claim they have a victory, and you know they'll go after her instead of going after, you know, someone who is more important or something like Janet Yellen. Although I assume Yellen will just get confirmed easily, but who knows? Um, but yeah, so that's that's one theory, or it's kind of like she had to land somewhere for some reason. She had like so many chits. Um, and yeah. that they had to put her somewhere, so they put her in like the you know the most boring role possible. It's like it's like the annex in the office where they were like you know no one people don't go there usually. And um, yeah, so so yeah, the so annex what, was in charge of like you know whether Wall Street gets regulated or not. Right. Okay. So even though it's boring, it it is a powerful position and one that you know can someone can wield influence there um, if they know how to like manipulate. Yeah, the, the levers of power. But, so, what's your punch for the subordinates? <laughs> yeah, and then it was alleged that she punched or pushed someone at some point, and yeah, she just seemed she she has she's kind of like a gaff machine in the even though she's not a politician, like she just like embarrasses herself a lot, but but still seems able to yeah she like gets wealthy individuals or corporations or whatever to write big checks for the Center for American Progress. So, what what is your theory about why they <laughs> why Nirtin and got this appointment? I mean, the conspiracy one is is plausible on the face of it, but that strikes me as a little too conniving for somebody like Biden. Um, I think it's just you know they're they're she's been a loyal team player for many years, and they're just handing out you know it's like, well, we can't give you this and that. How about that? Um, and there's really not all that much concern with whether she can do the job or not. You know. Um, and, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, could, it, it, it would, I mean, honestly, that would speak well of Biden if, if that was, or team Biden, if that was their intention to, to sort of throw her under the bus right. so that they can put, you know, some no-name, uh, just random bureaucrat who knows how to read the U.S. code and doesn't isn't emailing people's editors at 2 o'clock in the morning, like that Nira is known to do. Um, but... I guess we'll see. I honestly have not the slightest idea. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, she must be sort of a good bureaucratic infighter type um, to like rise to this position to begin with. She must have worked in the Clinton administration or Clinton White House originally, and and then moved to Cap. You know, yeah, she was a Clinton when when Clinton wasn't the Senate. She was a staffer for Clinton oh, for okay. many years, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so she must, I mean, th there must be some reason that, well, maybe not, but I, I would think there's some reason that she attained her position and continues to hold her position, and maybe that uh, secret, you know, skill set or something is what... Um, money. It's money. Okay, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, uh, so she's a good schmoozer or something, you know, she can talk to the uh, emir of Abu Dhabi uh, along with the Walmart <laughs> CEO and, and get yeah. million-dollar checks. Well, it's connections, you know. I mean, this was the, the New York Times article about how she punched Fez Shakir, um, Bernie's campaign manager. Uh, allegedly, she says she only pushed him uh, because he asked Hillary Clinton a question about the Iraq War, um, but that her mother was was like, "Yes, Cap runs all on Nira because she's out there raising money all the time." And that you know, there's a skill to it, I think, but it's also just about connections. You know, it's like you. You know who to pay to be able to get money, to get influence, you know, in the party and so on. And 
Yeah, and, and uh, usually that usually that type of person gets like an ambassadorship. It, it, as yeah. that's like traditionally understood, the the big donors will get a, a sweet, you know, um, a sweet S W E E T, you know, uh, ambassador to the court of St James or, or something like that, and and that's their plum sort of thing. And I think that you know that's the like remaining sort of spoil system thing yeah. <laughs> in in American government. So yeah, I guess we'll, I guess we'll have to see. But I think I don't know. I think the uh, I mean, so Jared Burstein was is the other person who i guess you you mentioned uh and spoke about um positively i mean he was by like he was on biden's staff in during the obama administration so he's been by uh biden's uh i think he was his his like chief economic advisor when he was vice president and has been a, a like probably biden's closest economic advisor for many years which is weird because like he's a pretty lefty dude he wrote a book with dean baker um about getting back to full employment this is a number of years ago Mm -hmm. um before the whole austerity thing had had sort of passed uh and he was arguing against austerity you know the whole of the uh you know 2009 2010 period um yeah, I mean, I, th- I think Biden, Biden's very, uh, he's a pretty warm personality, you know, he, he likes interpersonal connections a lot. And, and Jared is, I don't know if you've ever met him. I know I've spoken to him a couple of times. He's, he may have been on blogging heads back in the day. We definitely had Dean Baker on it at some point. He, so he may have been on once or twice. He's a very, very friendly guy, really warm, very, I mean, just in a town, especially like DC, which is full of just snakes, you know, <laughs> he's a, he's a rare, genuine guy who's just like, you know, interested and, and, and has like really good politics. And I think Biden just likes him. Mm-hmm. Um, and his, you know, his advice has, has always been really good. Um, and so, you know, that gives me a little bit of hope, you know, I think there are a number of people like that. Uh, you know, scattered. Heather Boucher seems, you know, reasonably all right. I I don't know her, um, but she's you know been sort of progressive economist, and she's also on the Council of Economic Advisors, I believe. So, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, as I say, you know, it's 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 a real question, and I would be I would be very surprised if if these these folks turn out to be like super aggressive, you know, and just like blitzing stuff through as quick as they can, like Trump does, you know, or it's, it's like pass the muzzle plan, get it struck down, pass it again on slightly, you know, and just like right. hit him and hit him and hit him. But who knows, you know, I mean, yeah, maybe I mean that... sort of like the, you know, the fact that the, the Trump and the GOP are willing to nominate for like a lifetime, you know, circuit court judgeship, like a 33 year old has never tried a case or something, just belongs to the Federal <laughs> Society. Like there's no uh, like opposite party version of that. Like the Democrats, like, yes, they want people who are going to rule their way, but like they, uh, they believe in like, you know, uh, the rule of law and like, yeah, there's just, yeah. and then also there's no Federal Society equivalent on the left to like funnel these people in. So, so that sort of it makes it, so there's been so, all these fuck ups in the, uh, throughout the, um, the past four years, but like they have, like lodged some policy wins and they got a lot of judges confirmed and stuff, but like the, 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 the Democrats just aren't going to run the same like playbook of appointing, you know, as long as Neil Katyal doesn't get a, a, a you know, nomination or anything. He's a guy, if people don't know, who was, who was arguing uh, against Nestle and Cargill being held accountable for using slave labor. And he was Obama's solicitor general for a, a period of time. <laughs> so 
Yeah, that's, that's, that seems, I mean, it seems like once you do that, you're committed to the sort of the corporate track uh, for the rest of your professional you career. Um, corporate slavery track. <laughs> but, um, well, you know, the golden handcuffs, as they say. But um, so I, I had one of the, oh, I, I guess the other thing I want to say is, you know, I, I've been saying for a while, I mean, I, I think I, I, I was proven right that Biden was basically, you know, was going to win, obviously. And also I've been saying on Twitter, like, you know, Biden, like, okay, he's this doddering old man, and he's clearly, like, lost some of his, you know, cognitive power over the years, and he also has had a number of shitty, even when he had his full cognitive powers, like, he was, you know, made a number of shitty decisions um, as a senator, um, and yet somehow I think he basically ran, like, a campaign that had no really major strategic errors of of, of any kind and like even the things yeah. that people tried to gin up like whether he what he would whether he would like denounce or embrace court packing and he was like i'm gonna wait you know that in the retrospect that looks great because obviously there's not gonna be any court packing with a with 50 uh democrats at the most in the senate so him you know biting his tongue on that uh made sense and so his you know he uh i i regret to say that he uh is his joe biden's political instincts seem better than the twitter liberal left hive minds uh, political instincts and you know he, and so I, while I've I'm not optimistic about you know uh, Morning in America um, returning um, with President Joe, it's like I don't know maybe maybe we just need to like see what you know what he thinks and I mean it's just it's it's just going to be a you know after the insanity of the past four years it's just going to be like more boring and and that'll be a good thing unfortunately we like the the need to think anew is um is very strong right now because of the pandemic and of the the state of the economy and you know long term threats like climate change and so forth so um i've been saying you know return to normalcy uh, is is what america wanted and chose biden but you know it, it, it might be impossible to return to uh you know we'll never get back to like 2015 normalcy let alone like early 2020 normalcy based on how bad things have gotten with the virus. But, um, so I'm not, yeah, I'm not super optimistic. Um, but at the same time, like, yeah, he, he basically played this thing, you know, he, he, he didn't have a major gaffe all year basically. And it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. He let Trump, you know, self-destruct. Yeah, he did. I, I mean, um, I will say, I think Biden got, uh, very lucky, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, the timing of South Carolina primary, you know, I mean, he got rinsed in the first three. Um, and also just in, I mean, being able to run, in a, you know, in objectively pretty favorable conditions, maybe not as favorable as they seemed. Um, and just being uh, running against a guy who basically made the argument against himself really well. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, you know, this maybe comes back to Obama, who I would say, I mean, for all his other faults, was... He, he knew how to run a campaign. He ran really, really good campaigns in 2008 and 2012. And he knew what to say. I mean, I, he, in terms of just like raw political instincts, how to win this, this, like this, uh, you know, election, you know, we haven't seen anybody like him in a long time, but, um, you know, where, where, if I could offer team Biden any advice, it would be to say that, um, you know, read my buddy Jeff Spross's piece in the American Prospect, which is about delivering how delivering concrete policy victories can also be a political winner over and above, you know, how you run a particular campaign. And for example, 
you know, the senior vote didn't used to be a thing. That that was Social Security and Medicare basically made that made the senior vote into that you know very high participation block vote that it is now, um, and the you know the reason is that this like these policies gave people the economic stability and the sort of like uh, you know feeling like they had a stake in in politics that they needed to participate, and there are a lot of ways that Biden could do that if he was so inclined. That would, you know, put him on a better sort of strategic footing where he could start doing another campaign in 2022, 2024, where, you know, like the objective economic conditions or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, are, are more favorable. And so, um, you know, will he listen to me? Almost certainly not. <laughs> but I hope somebody is telling him that. Jared, we're all pulling for you. <laughs> Uh, well, again, I, I realize we're, we're switching one Jared for another, and uh, and and the uh, Jared, this Jared Bernstein, um, uh, uh, I'm sure will do a, a much better job. Although he probably won't be, uh, you know, doing every single thing in the federal government as as Jared Kushner seems to have been doing over the past couple of years. Um, okay, so why don't we we cut over an hour? So why don't we stop it there? So uh, so Ryan, thanks for for coming on and um, letting me uh, push back on. Um, some things you've written about, and so you're you're at the week. Um, we'll include the link to your contributor page there. You're on Twitter, and what what is your Twitter handle? At Ryan L. Cooper, and I also have a podcast of my own, Left Anchor, um, that you can find online if you're so inclined. Okay, cool. Uh, so we'll and we'll include the link to that below on the blog site, and uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at a r y h c w. Um, So thank you again, Ryan, and thanks to all of our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks.